Welcome to episode two of Kept Secrets. I'm your host, Nikki Rothrock. This podcast is a way I can try to help anyone who has experienced childhood trauma. Today, we're going to discuss manipulation, racing stock cars, and the Andy Griffith Show. Content of this podcast will discuss my childhood sexual trauma, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we're going to read a blog entry from July 6th of 2012. It is titled Manipulation, Racing Stock Cars, and the Andy Griffith Show. So I'm going to read my journal entry and then I will follow up and discuss um, things that might be unclear um, in the timing because this kind of skips around a little bit. So here we go. It's funny how small things can be a trigger for post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. I feel like I've gotten used to some of my everyday triggers. For example, a song on the radio, driving down a certain road, or passing certain landmarks in my hometown, and so on. Last night, I went to a local short track where they raced stock cars. I used to go to this place as a child, and strangely, I still love to go with friends today. The track hasn't changed much since I was a little girl. I don't even think that they've updated the bleachers. It's a quarter-mile high-banked paved track, and depending on the class of cars that race there, Some of those buggies can fire around the track. I recently went with my love to a sprint car race. I think it literally took the cars 15 minutes to complete a 75-lap race. Anyway, I have some triggers that come to mind every time I go to this track. Some people might wonder why I continue to go to the racetrack where I first laid eyes on my main abuser, Tom. Well, I can't really explain it, but I really do love that place. I have a memory for, or of me about the age of four years old sitting on the top of the bleachers. It was about a story up. This was long before Tom entered our lives. My mom was married to my brother's dad at the time. I was kind of a crazy kid, and I didn't like to sit still much. I slipped and fell off the top of the bleachers. Luckily for me, my brother's dad was standing down below and caught me, like my very own Superman. Down I went right into his arms. I didn't realize at the time just how lucky I was. So back to why I like the track so much. Well, it's kind of the one thing that was a fun thing for me as a child. Tom used to race often, and I found it was fun to watch him. Okay, so try to wrap your mind around what I'm about to say. By now, everyone knows there was some deep, twisted manipulation between me and Tom. When he raced, I found it fun to have someone who I was very close to out there competing. I know this sounds a little strange, but when he was out there, I was his number one cheerleader. And there was some kind of rush inside of me. Weird, I know. If he had a good night, he was in a good mood, and he was extra nice to me. If he had a bad night, which sadly happened more than not, because he wasn't very good at the sport... He treated me differently. When he was feeling bad about himself, he would cling to me and look to me to make him feel better. I can remember a few times when he would tell me that our relationship was important to him and that if it weren't for me, he wouldn't be married to my mom. Ugh. Thinking about this now gives me a bad case of the heebie-jeebies. But Abby, or Nikki, I will try to refrain from using Abby because... It's really me, Nikki. (laughs) 
But Nikki, my inner child, believed him and truly thought he loved her. I feel sad for her when we talk about this. I used to tell her she was foolish for feeling the way she did about him. Now, I just let her feel the way she does. Acknowledging her feelings helps with the anxiety. A good feeling, her love for him as a child, versus a bad feeling, my adult feeling, that this type of love is or was wrong, used to cause me a lot of anxiety. So by allowing her to feel her feelings, I'm really taking care of her and myself now as an adult. You're probably wondering where the Andy Griffith Show comes into the title of this blog, right? Well, when I was nine and the abuse started at the hands of Tom. When I was nine, the abuse started at the hands of Tom. Sorry. As I've stated in earlier writings, I was responsible for waking Tom up each morning or early afternoon to get to work. Once he woke up, he would come downstairs and watch TV as he was waking up and drinking tea or coffee, depending on the season. It was during early afternoon that the abuse happened when the Andy Griffith show was on TV. I can still hear the whistling show opener music. I still stop in my tracks if I'm somewhere and I hear that tune. It's a show that always played in the background during the abusive episodes with Tom. On Tuesday, July 3rd, 2012, I was on a social media website and I saw an overload of status updates that Andy Griffith had passed away. I was sad for his family and his fans, but inside I was thinking, oh no, now they're going to have an overload of TV exposure of his show. Sad, isn't it? When a tragic situation happens and all I can think about is how I'm going to get through seeing and hearing the things that the actor was successful doing. <clears throat> Excuse me. There are a lot of other things that are triggers for me. Sometimes I don't realize they are triggers until I'm in the middle of a flashback wondering what the heck just happened to cause it. One evening I was on my way home from work listening to my iPod on shuffle. The next thing I know, I'm driving out of my way, past my childhood home, and past Tom's, at the time, current workplace, just to be close to him, because my inner child was having a fit-filled moment. Soon after that afternoon, I went to see Beth. She told me I was the adult, and I had to stop teasing Nikki. At first, I didn't quite understand what she meant by that, but she continued to explain to me how my adult behavior was fueling Nikki's anxiety about Tom. It was like teasing a child with a chocolate bar. Well, Nikki had a taste of the chocolate, and all she wanted was more and more and more. Excuse me. Beth told me that Nikki, who clung to Tom all of the time, was experienced traumatic bond issues. She said that when Tom left us in 1996, a portion of Abby's heart was ripped out, and only a black hole was left behind. So anytime something triggers Nikki's memories of Tom, she instantly wants to be near him. In this case, there was a song that played about a childhood home where a girl lived and all of the things that she learned while living in the home. In Nikki's mind, she needed to feel connected to Tom right now. I felt like I had no control over where I was driving or what I was going to do. Luckily for me as the adult, we did not run into Tom that afternoon. My actions caused Nikki to have an outburst of emotion for the rest of the evening. There was no consoling Nikki's broken heart that day. 
After talking with Beth, I understood where I went wrong. When Abby starts to feel as though she must find Tom and be close to him, I, as the adult, have to take control. I have to talk to Nikki and find out why she is sad or feels she needs to contact her abuser. Then I have to find a way to comfort her. My number one issue is taunting her myself. There were a couple of afternoons after that day when I was driving home and Nikki spoke up. We were passing the bowling alley where I was told Tom would be bowling that night. I could feel my anxiety rising as I got closer to the bowling alley. In my mind, I could see Abby sitting in the back seat, screaming like a little child. She wanted to go to the bowling alley. I told her we couldn't go because there was, because he was there and we were not allowed to go see him. She threw a huge fit, causing more anxiety for me. As I was sitting at the, t- at the stoplight where I could have turned to go to the bowling alley, I felt my anxiety raging. All I had to do was turn the corner and we could see a glimpse of Tom. Abby was crying and screaming by this point. The light turned green and I went straight through it, heading to my apartment. I could feel my heart sinking. Abby was very upset and crying. She was angry because she wanted to be close to Tom. She missed him. I kept saying out loud, we don't need him anymore. We have each other. We're going home, period. When I got home, I felt like I'd done the right thing. My anxiety was still high, but I walked down the long breezeway to my apartment door, and I put the key in the lock, and I opened the door. I went into the apartment, closed and locked the door behind me. We were not leaving for the rest of the night. It was then that I realized I was in control again. Nikki was sad and hurting, and I had to figure out what she needed to ease her pain. I did a journal entry that night. She expressed that she was lonely and missed him. In my personal life, I had just broken up with a boyfriend who I was with for a couple of years. So maybe I, adult me, was the one who was really lonely. It's weird how when I go through a breakup or something, I would think about Tom and Ryan. Tom was the unobtainable one who I thought about all the time. He was the one who was controlling me and made me feel some sense of ease when he was around in my mind. I felt protected and in some twisted way loved. When I would think about Ryan, my first boyfriend, I was always, I always thought about what could have been and how screwed up, how I screwed it up so horribly. I wondered what he was doing and if he ever thought of me in the way I thought of him. Thinking about Ryan felt wrong because I knew he was married and happy. I couldn't break up his marriage. I loved him way too much to cause them any more pain. I would have never really tried to contact Tom. It was too dangerous for my mental health. I knew that after talking to Beth about my drive-by experience, she told me she knew that I wouldn't contact him. But if I did, it could put me in a padded room. That thought alone scared the crap out of me. So I didn't try contacting him again. I know I have a lot of random thoughts in this post today. My mind has been all over the place lately. I'm trying to control the Tom thoughts in the relationship I'm currently involved in. I feel more alone lately. 
Maybe it's from losing my mother only three months ago, or maybe it's because of the recurrent depression that I'm struggling with again. Sometimes when I'm trying to go to sleep at night, my thoughts are brought back to Tom, and I wonder if he's hurting another girl like he did Nikki. Then I become angry, and well, that causes me anxiety and I can't fall asleep. I'm getting better at controlling the thoughts about the thoughts, but Beth said something in court once that has stuck with me. She told the judge that this stuff will never go away for me. I will suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder for the rest of my life. At times, it will lay dormant inside my mind until that one trigger finds me. So, this is my life. Thinking about a past that I wish I could overcome, some days I do feel like I've done okay, but then there are some days that are much worse. I keep remembering something else Beth told me. Quote, the body remembers things that the mind tries to forget. Unquote. This is an accurate statement for me anyway. During every month of May, I have sadness in me, and it comes out of nowhere until I realize what month it is. A couple of years ago, I was getting ready for my college graduation, and I was sad because I remembered that it was the month that many, many years ago Tom went to prison. I think about him on his birthday, and I wonder if he's happy. I get angry on holidays because he selfishly ruined a lot of them for my brother and I. I get angry a lot of the time. I think about him, but then Nikki speaks up, and I'm reintroduced to the sadness. Working through all of the issues I have, Working through all the issues that I've worked through has taken many years. I don't know if Tom knows or would even care about the hell that I've been through and all the stuff that I've been working on. Adult me knows he doesn't care, but then Abby peeks her head in the picture and assures me that he would care very much so. Some days, like today, I feel like I have a split personality. I'm talking about myself in the third person. It's a mental, it's a mental torture dealing with my adult life, and being in the shadow of my past. And that is the end of the blog entry. I apologize for my stumbling in my reading. Um, my entire life, I've hated reading out loud. I can think about third grade, sitting in Miss Simmons' class, and there was a girl that sat in front of me, and every time she read, she read really, really fast and accurate. And I was always behind her, and I was like, I can't follow her because she's a really good reader. And I am not. So hopefully with time and with each podcast, that will change and things will run a little bit smoother. <laughs> so I want to discuss a little bit about this post because there are some things in here that you're probably like, what the hell is she talking about? First of all, Ryan. Ryan was my first love. Um, Ryan and Tom were friends a long time ago. Um, but that, that story will come later. Um, but right now, because I don't think that in my first, first post or my first episode that I said anything about Ryan. So I wanted to clarify who he was. Um, secondly, racing stock cars. <laughs> oh my gosh. I am 43 and I I absolutely love going to the racetrack. My husband and I go quite often and um every, you know I I 
would go talk to Beth about this and she, she would tell me, um, that I was basically putting myself in the snake pit or the fire pit. I can't remember which one she used every time I would step foot at a racetrack because there was just a chance that I could run into Tom. So, you know, early on after he left in 96, actually he left in 94. I messed that up. Anyway, it doesn't matter. So early on, I'll admit, I used to go with my mom and my brother and Ryan. And it was kind of like I, w- I wanted to run into Tom a little bit. Or I wanted to run into his friends because I wanted them to see me with Ryan. And, you know, it, it was really twisted. And the manipulation was unbelievable. Um, you know, here I am, the abuse started at the age of nine. And in this, this episode, we're talking about the Andy Griffith show. So the Andy Griffith show was on in the background while sexual acts were taking place in our living room. I was nine. Um, you know, he, my mother would go to work and, and this was in the summer. So she would take my brother with her. Um, she delivered newspapers and so she didn't have to be at work until like 10 and then she'd be done about six. Well, she had a really big paper route, like a motor route, like back in the nineties and before then people would get their newspaper delivered to their house. And if you lived in the country or, you know, you couldn't, you, you could order the newspaper and have it delivered to you. So that's what my mom did. Um, and she had a really big motor route. And at that time, her and Tom were roommates. So they basically split the paper route in like, and almost in half. Um, and it was my responsibility. And I just want you to remember, I was nine years old, nine. I would never expect my nine-year-old child to wake up a grown man who was 25 years old, ever. I would never leave my nine-year-old child alone with a man who was not her father and expect her to have some adult responsibilities, waking him up, bringing him coffee. You know, if, if he needs something, getting it for him. That's just not something that would ever happen, and it should never happen. A nine-year-old should be, you know, playing with her friends and, and learning things and you know, I don't know, do nine-year-olds watch cartoons? I didn't. I watched the Andy Griffith show and the Oprah Winfrey show and Phil Donahue and sitcoms galore as a child. Anyway, back to the situation. So mom would take my brother with her and then I was responsible for waking Tom up. Then I would have to go with Tom because apparently he couldn't do anything on his own without the help of a nine-year-old little girl. Um, I was responsible for making sure that his newspapers were delivered correctly. Um, I, don't, I don't really understand why I was put in that position, to be honest with you. My mother put me in that position. And Tom was always like, yeah, she's a big help. I, need, I can take her with me, blah, blah, blah. Well, little did my mother know, well, she didn't know, that... You know, he would 
take me with him and a huge majority of his paper route was in the middle of the country during the middle of the day where most people were at work and children were at babysitters. So there was not a lot of traffic on these roads. So he would pull over on a deserted road and things would happen. And then we would pick right back up and go on the paper out. And then we would go home like nothing happened. You know, it, it could have been two or three times a day at that time. You know, we're talking a 25-year-old man who was pretty sexually um, active, I guess. Because I wasn't the only person he was having relations with. Um, you know, later I found out it was with my mother at the time. Um, there were other girls and people from his hometown that allegedly he was having relations with too. So it was, the manipulation started very young. I want you to picture, and I always, I will always call myself chunky because I was a very chunky child. Um, that's what fast food and snack cakes and pop and all that stuff will get you. So picture a nine-year-old little girl. She probably is about 170 pounds. Um, maybe a little bit heavier than that. She is just lonely. You know, she... Her mom doesn't really pay a lot of attention to her. Her mom is constantly giving all of her attention to my brother or her brother, the little child's brother. Um, so I spent a lot of time looking for attention. And I think Tom saw that. He saw this little girl who was prematurely developing breasts and, you know, had more of an adult figure than a nine-year-old figure. And he took advantage of that. And in doing that, he would also make me feel loved. You know, he made me feel special. And that is part of the grooming process of child abuse. Um, that lasted that entire summer before my fourth grade year in school. Um, there was so many, uh, I don't know if you would call them episodes or encounters, I guess we could call them that. You know, he got more and more brave. My mom would be home and he would be in the garage and he would have me come out there and quote unquote help him in the garage I don't know what the hell I could have done to help him. I was just out there. And, you know, then there would be other encounters happening out there. But as a child, I was enjoying the attention. Not the sexual attention, but the attention that he was giving me. You know, um, asking me if I wanted to go places with him or... You know, asking me if, if I liked race cars. And, you know, he was like, well, when you get older, you know, we'll build you a race car. And I freaking believed him. You know, I was nine at the time. So he kept saying when I was 16 that he would do it because then I could legally drive, which 
as an adult now, I realize you don't have to be 16 to drive a race car. So they're freaking jerk lied to me. (laughs) Anyway, um, he lied to me a lot, by the way, lots of manipulation. So the Andy Griffith show was just one of those things that I heard in the background during the abusive episodes or encounters, I guess. Um, so as an adult, I'll give you a, a little example of something that happened um, just like three years ago. My cousins, um, there's about six of us, and about seven, it was right after I got married, about seven years ago, we all decided that we needed to spend more time together. We needed to make time to spend together. So once a month, we all get together and we go out to lunch. Well, one of my cousins is a little bit older than me. She's about 15 years older than me. And she's telling me about this cafe that's in another city that's about 40 minutes away. And she's like, we really need to go there. It's called um, the Andy Griffith Cafe or the Mayberry Cafe. I'm sorry. And I was like, what? I can't, I can't go there. So the first time it was brought up, I told them I couldn't go. And then it came up again about a year or so later. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to tell them why. So most of them knew, but I wanted to let them know that it was still something that was hard for me as an adult. So I sucked it up and I was like, you know, I'm a freaking adult. I've been through many years of therapy and there's no way that I'm going to let this theme song to the sitcom dictate whether I'm going to go to a restaurant, get fried biscuits and apple butter, because those are something that I really like. They're like, you know, so we all piled in a car and we drove out there and we went in. And as soon as I walked in, it was like, oh my gosh, like they had the, there was a TV on and it had reruns over and over and over again. So every like 25 minutes or so, you hear the whistle, the theme song to the song or to the show. And I would literally freeze and I would shut my eyes and I'm like, okay, first of all, it's just a TV show. The TV show is not going to hurt me. Second of all, I'm an adult and I've had therapy and I've had treatment and this is not a big deal. I just need to acknowledge it. Yes, it triggers something for me, but I just need to acknowledge it and enjoy my time with my family. So that's what I did. And every time, we were there a couple of hours because we were sitting around chatting and, um, you know, eating or whatever. And they were busy. It was, a, I think it was a Sunday. So by the time I left there, it didn't really bother me as much. So it was almost like my little uh, exposure therapy situation and it helped. So now even if I hear it, yes, I pause, but I don't stop and it doesn't cause me to have a meltdown like it could have 10 years ago. Um, so that's where the Andy Griffith show comes in. The manipulation is all of the garbage that Tom fed me um, as a little girl growing up, telling me that, you know, my mother was having affairs and making me feel sorry for him, even though he was clearly in the wrong doing the 
horrible things to me that he was doing while he was in a relationship with my mom. Um, there's just, there's so many things that he said to me that now as an adult, I have to stop and think, okay, that is not necessarily a true statement or, you know, I maybe it, he wanted to marry my mom so he had access to me. I don't know. I'm not going to sit and, and tell myself that he loved me and he, you know, he stayed with my mother to be with me. That's not the case. He was abusing me. He was abusing my mom. He was sleeping around with half of the people that we knew and I didn't know but I didn't at the time it was not even on my radar yes I did get jealous and that was something that he taught me the jealousy that I had toward my mother which is odd it is a very odd feeling to feel when um you feel jealousy toward your mother because she wants to spend time with her husband. It's really disturbing. My dog is trying to get my attention, so if you hear him in the background. So the other thing, the stock car racing, it's something that I absolutely love watching. I would pretty much do anything to be able to just drive one race car in my life just to say that I did it. Um, you better hush, Archie dog. Shh. So, that being said, um, trying to think if there's anything else that maybe the traumatic bond that Beth was talking about was basically. Um, I actually had to look it up because I didn't. I didn't actually study anything about that when I was in grad school, or excuse me, when I was in undergrad school and I was taking psychology classes, this was not a topic that would typically come up. So it makes more, it makes sense because I was so dependent on the attention and the affection and the direction from Tom that I didn't know how to live without him there telling me what to do. Um, so, when he left, it just ripped my heart out. And it left this deep black hole of emptiness. And I didn't know what to do with that. And that's when a lot of the self-destruction and the downward spiraling came into my life. Um, because I didn't know what to do with the pain. I didn't know. And I was, I had start, started dating Ryan very shortly after Tom left our home. Um, and I transferred a lot of that dependency or that codependency from Tom to Ryan. And, you know, for a, I want I can't remember if I, I think I was 15 at the time. For a 15-year-old girl to have a boyfriend who is much older than her. My mother was aware. She, at the time, had no clue about Tom and the abuse. Um, 
but she knew that I really liked Ryan and she was kind of going with it. She was, she didn't get up. She, she trusted me. She didn't get upset when I spent hours and hours with him outside walking around the property or sitting at, you know, up watching a movie really late with him. Um, she didn't question it because she trusted me. She, she thought that I was, you know, some naive little girl who didn't know what was happening when in reality, I couldn't keep my hands off of Tom. Not Tom, sorry. I couldn't keep my hands off of Ryan. That was horrible, sorry. I couldn't keep my hands off of him and I, I needed and I craved his attention so bad that when we were apart, I felt, I felt like I didn't know what I was doing. Um, at one point he moved about 45 minutes away from where I was living and I didn't get to see him every day. And I thought I was going to lose my mind. Um, so that's when a lot of the self-destruction happened. Um, and there's other episodes that will go into that a little bit deeper. But um, Little Nikki, and not the movie Little Nikki, but myself, my inner child, she was very fragile for a long time because she just wanted to be loved. And the situation that I was discussing or talking about in this blog about the bowling alley, and I was literally a block away from the bowling alley. And I remember sitting there and visualizing this child sitting in my back seat, throwing a temper tantrum. And I was like, nope, we're not going there because we don't need him. We don't, we don't need that. So at that time, I took the parental role over her and I was protecting her. Because if we went there and we did see Tom, it could completely unravel a lot of the treatment that we had been going through. Um, and the treatment of just under it's almost like in a long for a long time I would always tell Beth I'm like if I ran into him all he would have to do is look at me a certain way and it was like I would snap back into his trance like or into the trance where I was under his control it was that wicked and that um that simple I guess I mean it I can remember a time when, this is a little side story, but I was, uh, I was 15 and Tom still lived with us and Ryan was coming around a lot at that time and that's when I was like, ooh, who's this cute guy? Um, and I just was crushing on him. Well, I was a 15-year-old girl and I had hormones and, you know, I, I tried to separate Tom because I wanted to have a boyfriend too and it was really hard because Tom was always there and he always knew what I was doing. So this one particular day, um, Tom was there and, and Ryan was there and there was another friend of Tom's and they were going to go into town because we lived in the country. They were going to go into town and drop off some car park to one of their friends. So I asked if I could ride along because I... Just wanted to get out of the house. So Tom said, okay. So 
Tom and his friend are in the front seat and Ryan and I are in the back seat. It's in a little minivan, one of the first ones that came out back in the 90s and we were in the center seats. Well, Tom, or not Tom, Ryan was flirting with me a little bit and Tom was giving me the death stare through the rear view mirror. His eyes were just piercing my, I mean, I can still see that look of he was just livid with me because of how I was acting. And I guess maybe I was flirting back with Ryan. I don't know, but he was mad. And later I found out that Tom was telling Ryan that I was having sex with people that I worked with. Um, because I worked at a little convenience store a couple miles from the house. And he said that I was staying after work and sleeping with these guys. And, you know, just really, really making me look out, look like kind of a slut at the age of 15. When in reality, Tom was the only person I was having sexual relations with. So Ryan just kind of was like, okay, whatever. You know, but he still flirted. And I was like, this guy is really cute. And it just made me happy to see Ryan. So that's just one instance where Tom had control over me. Because after that, Tom was with us for probably another three months or so. With us, meaning my mother in our home. Um, and I was, I was pretty much forbidden to see Ryan. Um, I was not allowed to interact with him and Tom at the same time because it made me look like a dirty whore <laughs> is basically what Tom would say. So that is a lot of drama for a teenage girl to, to try to work through, you know, I was a I was a freshman in high school. I had just finished my freshman year and I didn't know that Tom was going to leave my mother that year. Um and when he did, it was just it was like I could breathe. But my mother the morning that Tom left, my mom had been at work delivering the newspapers in the overnight, like the really early morning newspapers. She, I was working at the convenience store that I worked at. My granddad got me this job. I was 15 or whatever. And I had to go in at 6 a.m. and I would work until like 3. Well, probably about 10 a.m. my mother comes busting through the doors and she's like, what did you do? And I was like, what? And this is in front of customers, okay? This is super embarrassing. She's like, what did you do? And I was like, what are you talking about? She's like, you, what'd you do to piss him off? And I was like, who? And she's like, Tom. And I was like, I don't know what I do. And she's like, well, he took all of his stuff and he's gone. And I was like, you mean like he moved out? And she's like, yeah, what did you do? And I'm sitting, I'm standing there and I'm like, I didn't do anything. And then I, I remembered a couple nights before Tom made his 3 a.m. visit after my mom would leave to go do her morning paper out. He would come up to my bedroom and 
at that time, I was crushing on Ryan a lot. And I was feeling guilt um, for doing what was, you know, for going along with the things that I thought I had control over with Tom. But obviously I didn't. Um, But I felt guilty. And I told him, I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. And he got angry. He was like, what do you mean? And I was like, I don't want to do it anymore. He's like, fine. I'll just, we'll just go downstairs and, you know, when your mom gets home, we'll tell her everything. And I was like, no, she doesn't have to know, but I just don't want to do it anymore. And he got really mad and he pushed me down into the bed, like with a lot of force. And he walked out of the room and shut the door. Well, probably about 15 minutes later, I was sitting there and I was not able to go back to sleep and I was trying to try to think what he was going to do and I could hear him walk back up the steps because every time he would come up the steps I could hear his knees pop it was like that that knee I don't know it was just a certain sound that I could hear every time and I knew it was him so he came back in my room and he was like well since you don't love me there's no other reason for me to to stay here. And I was like, whatever. And I went, I rolled over and went back to sleep or tried to. So he left. Well, that memory didn't come to me until many hours after my mother came into my work and told me that I, it was my fault that her husband left her. I don't understand where she got that from, but she obviously thought that I had more control over him than she did. I was 15, so I don't know. I never really asked her why she blamed me, but she was pretty pissed off at me, and everyone in the store could hear what she was saying because we went to the back of the store, and and she was yelling at me. And so after that, uh, we tried to figure out what we were going to do, you know, like, I felt responsible for him leaving after I denied him. And, you know, of course, my mother didn't know any of this. Um, So I guess she thought I was just being a dumbass teenager and that I was just pissing him off enough that he wanted to leave his whole entire life behind and vanish into thin air. So long story short, we found out that he had a girlfriend and... Um, it was no secret apparently around the, the bowling alley people and everyone knew except us and well, actually Ryan even knew and we didn't know. So he, um, basically moved in with his girlfriend who later became his wife. So that is something that will come up later when we talk about court and we talk about, um, Everything else that rolled into that situation with him and his new girlfriend slash wife and the divorce and what happened the day that mom received the divorce papers from Tom. Um, so there is a lot more to the story. And I, I hope that you're finding this a little bit interesting and Um, I hope that some of the things that I've told you about, like working with the inner child and calming her down and, and really making that, 
a priority in my mental health. And like I said in my last episode, it's such a, it is such a wonderful feeling when you can work through something and you can self-soothe without (laughs) self-medicating, if that makes sense. You can self-soothe because you know you have the tools and you know what to do to make the anxiety lessen and you don't have to take medication. And if you do have to, I take medication daily um, for anxiety and depression. That will never change. Um, I tried to go without it and lost my damn mind. So, you know, there is just the chemical difference in my brain where I need some sort of medical help. Excuse me. And that is absolutely nothing to be ashamed of nothing to be ashamed of. You know, like a diabetic, they have to have insulin. There's no reason for them to be ashamed of having that chemical deficiency or, you know, you just have to have it to be better. And it's not like alcohol or, you know, heroin. You don't have to have those things to be better. Some people think they do, but you really don't. But in this case, you know, I spent a lot of time with my doctors trying to figure out what worked for me. Um, and got it all worked out. And now every, you know, my mental health is on the right track for now. (laughs) Um, I'm not going to say that I don't have triggers because there are, there is not a day that goes by that something does not remind me of something that brings me back to Tom. There's, you know, in, in my marriage, there's sometimes, you know, there are things about my stepchildren and I, I don't understand showering your children with all of this, you know, this, this wonderful education, this expensive education um, that my husband pays for for his children. And, you know, when I was a kid, I had no choice. I didn't even know there was private school. I had no idea. I didn't know that you could go to school and study study about God. I thought that was just a church thing. So as an adult now, I still struggle with that because I'm like, why can't they just go to public school? And and Ryan is or my husband is like, well, it's because I want them to have that education and give them the proper tools so that they can live their life the way you know so anyway my childhood is something that definitely impacts the way that I look at parenting our or his children or my stepchildren because you know when and I'm not going to go out of rant I promise I'm almost done this this episode is almost wrapped up but you know as a child Um, In sixth grade, the big thing were white canvas tennis shoes with the little blue label on the back that said KEDS, K-E-D-S. And I wanted those so freaking bad I could taste it. But they were like $30 or $40, and my mother absolutely refused to spend that much money on a pair of shoes. So instead, I would go to Walmart, and I would spend $2.97 for a pair of knockoff shoes that didn't even look like those shoes at all because they were so cheaply made and but that was as close as I could get well 
now my stepchildren, you know, they need a pair of cleats for soccer. We're spending $95 on a pair of cleats for soccer. That would have never happened in my childhood. You know, having going and playing sports, that would have never happened. Um, I tried my freshman year. I wanted to play soccer. My mother told me that she did not have time to run me back and forth to practices and to games and things like that. So I did not get to play any sports. I, I, you know, I was in, I was in choir when I was a freshman and in eighth grade. Um, nobody came to my performances. It wasn't a priority for them. Um, I would get a ride with my neighbor and somebody, mom or Tom, would come pick me up and bring me home. But not one time could they have taken the time out of their life to come and sit and watch me perform. So now, when my husband goes to soccer games, cross-country game, like tournaments or events or whatever, you know, I, I sometimes it's annoying because I'm like, man, you have to get up at like 6 o'clock on a Saturday morning to drive an hour to get to a game or whatever. But I know how important that is to the kids. So I'm not going to argue with that. I mean, sometimes I'm like, I'm not going. Because... <laughs> You know, I don't, I'm not the parent, I'm the step-parent. So, um, anyway, I went off on a rant or a tangent, I'm sorry. So, the next episode, next week, I haven't fully decided what we're going to look into yet, but um, it will be another one of my blog posts. Um, It might be about my aha moment, it might be about the day that my mother passed. Um, I'm not really sure, I will let you know, Um, but this this one is in the bag. We are done. So, um, I, I really do hope that in some way I've helped you maybe have a different perspective on things. Um, think of me whenever you see the Andy Griffith show. (laughs) Some of you are probably like, what the hell is the Andy Griffith show? So it's a black and white TV show from a very long time ago. So anyway, have a great night, great day, good afternoon, whatever you're doing or Um, just be good. Make good decisions is what I always tell my stepsons. Make good choices. Until next time, I will talk to you. And I hope you have a good day, whatever it is you're doing. Bye for now.